0: Welcome to Hematopoiesis, an ASH Trainee podcast made by trainees for trainees. My name is Becky Zahn. And I am Nina Balanchibati. We are so excited to have you join us in this three-part series, Women in Hematology. In this series, we will talk with leaders, Dr. Nancy Berliner, Dr. Ariella Marshall, and Dr. Nana Haman. Together, we will explore what it means to be a woman in hematology, focusing on concepts such as challenges faced by female physicians, mentorship and career development, and intersectionality. My name is Dr. Nina Balanchivadze, current member of the ASH Trainee Council and Chief Fellow in Hematology and Oncology at Henry Ford Cancer Institute. Thank you for joining me and my guest, Dr. Nancy Berlinger, for today's episode of Hematopoiesis. This is the first part of the three-episode series, Women in Hematology. Dr. Nancy Berlinger is the professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and H. Franklin Bunn chair of hematology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. In addition, she is the editor-in-chief for the Blood Journal. Dr. Berliner, you are a hematology celebrity, and you have a cult of followers. We're all interested to hear about your career path. How did you decide to pursue hematology? So
1: I really should prepare a stock answer to that question because I get asked it all the time, and it's a little embarrassing that I kind of backed into being a physician I grew up surrounded by doctors. My father worked at the NIH for most of his career, the youngest of four children, and the only one who went into medicine, and spent most of my life being told I would be going into medicine. And I went to college with what I thought was an open mind. I majored in comparative literature, English and French, and I took science courses as I went along with the idea that maybe I would decide to go to medical school. And when I was partway through organic chemistry, I decided, I guess that meant I was going to apply to medical school. And I, I usually tell my kids that I appear to have had a relatively unexamined life and that I kind of backed into a lot of the things that I've done. Fortunately, I loved medicine and decided to go into hematology mainly because I trained as a resident at the Brigham and most of my mentors were hematologists, Frank Bonn, Joel Rappaport and got me very interested in taking care of hematology patients. And I was also interested in the interface between molecular biology and clinical medicine. And at the time, hematology was one of two or three subspecialties that were most closely linked to the developments in molecular biology, which I don't want to date myself, but was just beginning to become a major part of research in medicine. So that's more or less how I got involved in hematology, and the rest has rolled out the way it has. I've had a pretty varied career. I started out as an almost full-time researcher and have gradually evolved toward more clinical research and teaching and clinical medicine, and then more recently, of course, more administrative work.
0: It is not unusual to hear about physicians drawn to medicine after a life altering experience or having an ill family member, but organic chemistry sparking interest in medicine? It's definitely an unusual answer. You know, not too many people know that Dr. Berliner was the first female chief resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Berliner, what was it like to be the first female chosen as chief resident then? So
1: it's really. Obviously, it was very exciting to be the first female chief resident at the Brigham, but the women were a rather small minority of the house staff for many years at the Brigham. And what was most interesting, I think, about being announced as the chief resident was that all of the women who were on the house staff and all of my women friends who were married to the house staff were thrilled and very excited and sort of couldn't stop saying enough about about how excited they were. And the reaction among my male colleagues was total shock. It was something that they had never considered as a possibility. In all the speculations about who would be chief resident, there was never a woman's name mentioned. And interestingly, although a lot of them were very close friends of mine, not a single one of them congratulated me because I think not because they resented it as much as the fact that they were completely shocked. and They didn't quite believe it. So that was a major big deal at the time. And to this day, I think the paradigm of medicine is male. And so it offered an opportunity to try to mold that image a little bit by being in a leadership position among the House staff. Otherwise, being chief resident is an experience in and of itself, whether you're male or female. So it was not, I guess, that different from being a male chief resident at the Brigham. Now there are three chief residents at the Brigham at any time. Uh, at the time, there was only one. It was actually my recommendation to Dr. Brownwald, who was the chief of medicine at that time when I left, that there ought to be at least two. And after the year that I was chief president, he actually did that because it was it was a pretty big job. We, in addition to the sort of expected things that was running morning report and talking to the house staff and all of that. And in those days, of course, morning report was more complicated because we didn't have nearly the access to the computer. So we meant, it meant spending a lot of time Xeroxing articles to hand out to the house staff. And you were sort of an informal consultant because I did it after I would completed fellowship. So you were rather informal consultant, but you didn't actually do attending on the wards because it was very much a full-time job. You know, you couldn't email people to set up conferences. You had to call them on the telephone. You had to send them letters on paper. And uh, so it was it was a much more more backward way of of running the show. Now they have multiple chief residents, they actually serve as attendings on the service while they're doing that, which is a very different and I think very rewarding experience, but it was a different time. And I would say that more than half of the chief residents in the last 10 years have been women, so you can't really say that nothing has changed. I do think that there are ideas and attitudes among physicians that have changed less than I would like to have seen. It's always surprising to me that when I meet with a group of women house staff, they still have house staff dinners together with women faculty. The things they talk about are not that different from the things we talked about, about the things people say to you, about the attitudes of your male colleagues Despite the fact that there's a really strong camaraderie among all of the house staff, male and female, I do think that, as I said, the paradigm of medicine remains male. And I have been shocked at how often women house staff still say, I told him what he should do on rounds, and, you know, he just didn't seem to think he had to do it. <laughs> so while things have gotten better, more than half of the house staff at the Brigham is now women. And as I said, I think if you look over the last 10 years, more than half of the two presidents have also been women. And so in an absolute way, it certainly has improved. But I still think it's a constant fight to assert yourself as something other than a woman in medicine and to get the kind of respect and consideration that is sort of assumed by your male colleagues.
0: As I hear your story, it amazes me that being a physician in a leadership position is stressful enough, and there is an additional stressor of self-validation about being anything other than a woman in medicine. And you have said the paradigm in medicine is still male. Has that changed for you, especially going from chief resident to chief of hematology? How do you think you have contributed to changing this paradigm? Or how can we change the paradigm? So I do think
1: it's changed. I mean, when I started out as a new junior faculty member, I actually moved from the Brigham to Yale because right before I became chief resident, I got married and my husband was teaching architecture at Princeton. And he commuted throughout my chief residency. And we both got recruited back to Yale, which was both of our alma mater. And so we moved to Yale. So I was a new junior faculty member there. And at the time, I mean, everything has changed. I always tell people that I give a lot of talks on how to negotiate a job. And the subtitle of the doc is always do as I say, not as I did. Because when I moved to Yale, I wanted to go because my husband was there. We were going to, you know, finally be living together. And I went and I talked to the chief of hematology and he was very nice. I talked to everybody in the division and they recruited me there and I had no startup. I had a grant already. I had already gotten a K award and they did find a small internal fellowship to pay the rest of my salary. And I set up shop in my mentor's lab and I lucked out because my mentor was another famous hematologist, Ed Benz. Who really fostered my career. And I have to say, I give a huge amount of credit to Ed for being a spectacular mentor and supporter, especially of women. One of the stories I tell is I about a year after I got there, I was pregnant. And I was very in fact, it was probably less than a year. And I was very nervous about going and telling him I was gonna have a baby. And he said, That's great, but you know, you're not gonna be able to spend as much time at the bench. Take one of my technicians. And he paid that technician until I got my first R01 and could pay her myself. And she worked full-time for me. So it really made all the difference in the world, having someone who would really uh, uh, nurture my career. Obviously, that has changed completely. No one who's going to do bench science, especially, ever gets recruited without a startup package. In fact, it was ironic because the chief of hematology, Bernie Forget, who also became a very close friend and mentor, came to me one day because we were recruiting a new faculty meeting. And he said, Nancy, I can't find your offer letter. And I'd like to use it for, you know, sort of boilerplate to get started on this letter for this new faculty member. And I said, Ernie, you can't find an offer letter because there never was one. And he said, don't be ridiculous. I said, Ernie, you won't find it. And that would never happen today. And so most of what I talked to residents and fellows about who are looking at jobs is, How it's easy for me to say how much you get in your startup isn't all that important because I didn't even have one. But that's obviously not the right answer anymore. But in terms of fostering women's careers, I think that what has changed, first of all, there is an idea among women that to truly succeed, you have to have a woman mentor. So I'm the living proof that that's not true. I had a mentor who was a man who, I have to say, was exceptionally sensitive to issues for women. And really, he got the mentoring award at ASH, and almost all who wrote in support of that award were women. And he's gotten awards for promoting women's careers. So he clearly is a bit unique in that regard. But one of the reasons that most of the mentors of successful women in medicine in my generation were men is because there weren't very many successful women to be mentors. So I think one of the things that has changed is that there are women now who can serve as mentors. And that's been one of the highlights of my career actually is mentoring junior faculty and especially women junior faculty. Testimony to how few there were is that I have mentored both at Yale and here a lot of women who are not in my division, not even in my department, who come to me because, you know, they talk to somebody and say, oh, you should go talk to me. You know. And so, so I think that there's still a role for being somewhat sensitive to issues around being a woman in medicine and being a mentor. And then I guess I never expected to do this, but I guess the example of seeing women in leadership positions is encouraging to other women. And so just being able to succeed in getting these positions is a big step. And so when I was coming up, there was one woman chief of medicine in all of the country. It's not perfect now, but there are more. And it was unheard of to have a woman dean of a medical school. And now there are several, including my alma mater. (laughs) So I think that the situation has changed. In fact, what's surprising to me is the situation has changed so much that I am most of the time thinking things are getting better and then completely blown away when the old attitudes emerge, despite the fact that people are surrounded by women, many of whom are extremely successful. And then, of course, I think the other thing that's changed is that there was a lot of lip service paid to sharing responsibilities for children and family and all of those things for a long, long time. But I actually think it is more a reality now than it ever was when I was coming up. Men and women share, but the default was mom. And when daycare called, they called mom. And, you know, you could be on rounds. And of course, a lot of physicians are married to other physicians, but I was married to someone in a completely different field. doesn't matter. And in those days, it was, I think, much less equitably shared than it is for many people now. And that makes a huge difference. But I will say that most of my life, I've never felt like I had less than three full-time jobs.
0: I think you brought up very important topics. In your opinion, are women good mentors? And what advice do you have for women in medicine? How can one seek out a mentor or a sponsor? Or how is a sponsor different from a mentor? Well, so
1: as I said, I was very lucky. I had a mentor that fulfilled all those roles. And basically, you know, not only was... phenomenal scientific mentor but also really sort of nurtured my career stepped in with the department you know i was the chief resident which was great but it also meant that when i went to yale they all said well you have to attend on medicine because you're chief resident you have all this to offer and blah 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 and finally after a couple of years of that ed said she can't attend on general medicine until she's been promoted and that was the end of it (laughs) so and he did that without telling, you know, he basically did that independently, May, asked if it was okay with me if he did that, but did it without implying that I was complaining about anything. And similarly, you know, in those days you were on every committee, blah, 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 blah. but finding a mentor is a little tricky. My selection of Ed was pretty serendipitous. I went and talked to everybody in the division and heard about what they were doing. They heard about what I was doing and Ed seemed like a good match. I didn't really know him. And I was incredibly lucky. I'd like to think it was instinct, but I don't give myself that much credit. So I can't really, like many things, how I got into medicine, how I chose it, all these things seem to me fairly lucky, random choices. But I think the most important thing in finding a mentor is if you're in a scientific career, I always tell people to, of course, find a lab that's doing things they're interested in but that their success is tied to finding a mentor that they can relate to. And in many ways, it's a personal response, personal reaction, and a sense of whether this is a fit for you. And when it isn't, I have advised people to change mentors because it's just not working for them. Even... You know, I've had people who were working with some very close friends of mine and they came in and they said, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm thinking of leaving science. I'm thinking of leaving this. I said, well, why don't you start by leaving the lab you're in and find someone else and see if that works well. And usually that does make a difference. Some people have many mentors, which is fine too. You know, there's some people who do actually have someone who mentors their research and someone else who sort of is their career mentor. I have been a long-term career mentor for several young women who have been in labs doing things completely different from what I do and have other laboratory mentors, but who have come for career advice and help with job searches and things like that. So it's really a matter of personal style, but the one thing that is absolutely clear and what I always tell people when I talk about looking at a job is that if you're looking at a job and you're seriously considering going there, one question you have to establish in your mind before you consider it is who is going to be my mentor? Because I don't think I'm unique in the fact that I'm completely convinced that if I had not been incredibly lucky with a mentor, my career could have gone nowhere. But do I think women are good mentors? I think women are good mentors, sometimes and bad mentors, sometimes just like men. I don't think there's anything particularly uh, unique about that. I do think that some women are especially good mentors for women because they are sympathetic to some of the issues that men may or may not perceive. I think there are other women who actually have the opposite reaction. They figure, you know, I had a really tough time and that's just the way it is. And life is tough and suck it up. So, And I think the same is true of men. I think there's some men who are really good mentors and other men who are not. So I think the most critical thing about the mentor is being clearly focused on their mentee in a way that is separate from their identity and separate from what they do and what they think, except as how it can help the mentee shape his or her thoughts about what they want. And there are some people who are very good at that and some people who are not. In many ways, it's a learned skill. I don't think you're born being a mentor and it takes time to build those reflexes. And I think people who've had good mentors tend to be good mentors because they have a model of how to mentor people.
0: You know, I find it intriguing that women in various roles in their career are not sure how they are perceived, or at least tend to think a lot about how they are being perceived. Am I too strict? Am I too demanding? Or am I too nice that now I have to worry about additional responsibilities to be given to me? I'd like to hear about your personal qualities that have helped you or didn't help you succeed as a woman in a leadership position at a major academic institution. Well,
1: that's a complicated question. So that question epitomizes my feeling that the paradigm of medicine is male, <laughs> because Women tend to be, and this is a gross generalization, and obviously it's not universally true of either sex, but women tend to think more about those things and be much more conscious of how they appear to others. And I think a lot of that is a reflection of the fact that they are constantly wondering how they measure up to a male standard. It's a catch 22. So if you behave like a woman and this is less true than it used to be, but when certainly when I was in training, if you behave like a woman, i.e. you tend to be more oriented toward a team approach, you ask more questions, you don't think it's a weakness to ask questions about things you don't like to do, things you're not sure about, then you worry that people are going to perceive you as being incompetent because you're always double-checking what you're supposed to do in a given situation, which is actually very healthy, especially in a training environment, and is actually very good for the patient rather than deciding that you can't ask a question and going ahead and doing what you were thinking of doing and probably was the right thing to do, but you're just not that confident. Versus if you go ahead and do all those things and sort of act and talk based on some kind of male standard, that always was perceived as someone being aggressive, unpleasant. You can use all the adjectives you want. So I do think that that too is gradually improving, but I do think there is a part of the milieu that still embraces some of those ideas. I think women who are assertive engender far more fear and hostility than men who do it as a way of life and so i have often wondered how i'm perceived by other people and in the end you kind of have to say well i try very hard to be collegial and i sort of over the years curbed my temper more and become more relaxed about things i think a lot of it builds on your own self-confidence And once you are sort of at home in your own skin, you can adjust those things more easily. But I think successful knowledgeable people are often intimidating to other people, whether they mean to be or not. And if it happens to be a woman, I think people are more intimidated for reasons that don't necessarily come easily to mind why, but I think it's true. But I also think on the flip side that I have very close relationships with a lot of my junior faculty and a lot of the people that I mentor in a way that I think are often less formal and more personal than a lot of my male colleagues. So it's a two-way street.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Berlinger. So here's my last question. What is your advice for women starting out in their career, academic or non-academic? Do you think it's important to put yourself out there, reach out to people and let them know what you do. How important is it to be assertive? You have said many times that it was all luck, would you think it's the woman in you talking, attributing your success to a series of lucky events rather than your hard work and dedication to get you to your current position. In your opinion, should we be marketing ourselves as we build our careers?
1: So obviously, if you're going to be going out looking for a position, looking for a job, starting your career post fellowship, there's a certain amount of being out there that's necessary. I think that one of the reasons that it's really, really important to have a good mentor is that the mentor does a lot of that for you if they're doing their job. So if you have someone who suggests your name to give talks, suggests you for a study section, encourages you to do X, Y, and Z, that really makes a huge difference in getting recognition. I think if you're in sciences, you get an opportunity to put yourself out there by writing abstracts and presenting at meetings. And actually, in many ways, I know people are frequently disappointed when they get a poster instead of an oral, but in many ways, a poster session is a great way to make connections and meet people and find people that are doing similar things to you and allow you to set up collaborations and things like that. Clinically, I think the same thing applies, writing chapters and all the things that people say, well, they're just swallow up a lot of time and They're really not the things you should be focused on. I actually don't agree with that. I think early on, you get a lot of recognition for co-writing chapters with your mentor or writing chapters for other things. Obviously, you don't want to spend your life doing that, but I think a couple of well-placed publications of that sort gets your name visible. But I think it's very difficult, and I know it's especially perceived as being difficult for women, but I think it's actually difficult for men and women to sort of promote yourself. So it's always good to have someone who's behind the scenes promoting you instead. But I do think you need, especially in academics, either clinical or or research in academics, you do need to have some measure of name, face, whatever recognition, Zoom recognition, <laughs> to make that happen. In the course of looking at jobs, you do get an opportunity to do some of that because if you apply for a job and your CV interests, the people who are hiring, you'll have an opportunity to go and work Zoom and give a talk and sort of introduce yourself to people. But I think there is a certain amount. I was very reluctant to do a lot of that, especially, again, in the early days when you have a new career and you're just setting up your lab and frequently at that point have a new baby and and a family to take care of. And I do think that that's something that remains as a difficult thing in getting yourself out there. I know when I was a faculty member in the early stages of my career, I went to the ASH meeting and otherwise I didn't travel because I had little kids and I had too much going on and my husband traveled, but we traveled as a family on vacation. I did virtually no business travel. And I remember when I was recruited to Hartford and they were trying to appoint me I must have been called five times by the person who did the appointments and pro Are you sure you don't have any more international talks you can put on your CV? And there's this irrational idea that the way you prove yourself is by being invited to national and international talks. I said, no, I raise kids. <laughs> So I do think it's really hard to promote yourself that way. It's very hard to be a self-starter in that. But in the long run, it's probably to your advantage, at least to some extent, to get out there.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Berliner, for taking time to talk to us to share your words of wisdom. I'm sure our early career physicians will find your advice very useful and we'll continue to build down the strong foundation laid down by amazing women physicians like yourself. Thanks again. And I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in.